Well, as we turn our attention to God's Word at this time, last week we began our uh, new series in the Gospel of Matthew, and I'll give you a moment to turn there to Matthew 1. And we saw Matthew's uh, introductory, his opening words, which are a genealogy. And we saw that the genealogy began with Abraham and moved forward to Jesus the Christ. And throughout that genealogy, which in some ways serves as kind of a brief history of the Old Testament, Uh, moving from Abraham to David, David to uh, the deportation, the exile, then from the exile to the Christ. We saw important figures, important Old Testament figures, people like Abraham and David, uh, to whom God made great and glorious promises of eternal and universal significance, uh, a forever king, the son of David, and the seed of Abraham through whom all the nations uh, will be blessed. Abraham and David. We also see, uh, saw particular figures, kings like Solomon, Hezekiah, uh, Josiah. Uh, and then we also saw figures who were uh, outsiders, uh, Gentiles, broken, very broken people like Tamar and Rahab and Ruth. And though the historical characters listed throughout that genealogy are quite Uh, diverse, all the way from someone like a King David to a Moabite like Ruth, all a part of the genealogy leading to Christ. Among the things they have in common, one thing is that they were all born a natural birth. That is, all their births are the result of a natural conception. And that shouldn't surprise us. But as we move through Matthew 1, we now come to verse 18, to a different conception, something that is unusual, a -a one-of-a-kind conception and birth, uh, one that's not the result of natural means, but something supernatural. And so we are introduced in Matthew's Gospel for the first time to the concept of something miraculous. An extraordinary manifestation of God's lordship. A miracle. And we see it in the conception of Christ. We will see it toward the end of the Gospel in the resurrection of Christ. And this is important for us as Christians. We believe in the miraculous. We live in a culture and throughout history in which many people have opposed and rejected the concept of of the miraculous, but in Scripture, we are a people who believe in this kind of extraordinary work, and we see it here in the conception of Christ in His taking on of flesh. So we turn to Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Listen now to God's Word. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When His mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son... You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. 
All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet from Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. As we, we, as we reflect on the account here of the conception and the birth of Christ, we're mindful that this is a historical account, but not only a historical account, but an account that contains a miracle. This is a supernatural work. And we're reminded that this is an event in history which has served as a test of true orthodoxy throughout the history of the Christian church. In one of the most well-known and earliest Christian creeds, I trust we recite from the Apostles' Creed here, in seeking to summarize what the Christian is to believe, which is what the Apostles' Creed seeks to do, here we have a statement in the Apostles' Creed centering on the conception and the birth of Christ. And we're familiar with those words. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, And in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary. That's from the Apostles' Creed. Uh, In fact, in one of our own Reformed confessions, the Heidelberg Catechism, written in the 1560s in Germany, in question 22, it asks the question, the very important question, what is the Christian to believe? What is necessary for a Christian to believe. And it answers that question by saying this, all that is promised to us in the gospel, which the articles of our Christian faith summarize, and then it quotes the Apostles' Creed. In other words, in that confession, the answer to what shall we believe is contained in the summary here of the Apostles' Creed, including... I believe in Christ, God's only begotten Son, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. And this is is what the Lord, through Matthew, is emphasizing here in the birth story, in the conception story. In great part, because the way that Jesus comes into the world reveals the kind of person, the kind of Messiah, the kind of Christ that He is. Therefore, the kind of Redeemer that man needs. We should remember that in the story of Scripture, God is not found by man. He's in pursuit. He comes after His people. What are people to do with Him? What will people do with the Christ? Uh, Toward the end of his life, the late uh, John Stott, minister for many many years at All Souls church in London, was asked in an interview just years before his death about his conversion to Christ. And he said when he was 17 years old, although he had been raised in the church, he had read his Bible, he had said his prayers, he said, Jesus was merely a piece of furniture in my mind. It didn't mean anything to me. But he said one Sunday at a boys' youth meeting, there was a guest speaker And the speaker spoke, he preached on Pontius Pilate's words in Matthew 27. 
as Pilate brings out to the crowd Barabbas and he brings out Jesus. And the crowd desires that Barabbas be released. And Pilate says, quote, What shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? And Stott said, When I heard those words, it hit me between the eyes. I didn't know I had to do anything about Jesus who is called Christ. He had simply been a part of the furniture in my mind. I had believed in God as everybody had. But the idea I had to do something about him was entirely novel. And as we march through the Gospel of Matthew, as you march through any of the Gospels, we see people responding to Jesus in numerous ways. We see people testing him, some rejecting him, some seeking to trap him. Some are very skeptical and doubtful about him. We remember John's words in John 1 that Jesus came to his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Christ comes into the world. What are we doing with him in our own lives? How is our life a response to his coming? So I want us to see a few things about his entrance into the world, his taking on flesh. The first is the circumstances surrounding the conception and the pregnancy. We're told in verse 18, if you look there, that the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, that is, before they had intimate relations, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Uh, The way that Jesus comes into the world and into history is counter to what most people would think proper. Because it's surrounded with this sense of embarrassment. It's kind of shrouded with the appearance of even scandal. There's a scandalous note or question. Joseph and Mary, they were uh, betrothed, it says. Well, in ancient Judaism, not only were a man and woman not permitted to live under the same roof during the betrothal period, certainly not to have intimate relations, but and as I'm sure many of you know, betrothal was a legal and binding uh, engagement, and it could only be broken through divorce. And so this is why we're told at the end of verse 19, when Joseph considered ending the relationship, he would do so by means of divorce. They're betrothed, but he would seek to consider divorce. And this story is perhaps so familiar to uh, many of us it's easy to miss the depth of pain and humiliation that surrounds it. Because we're only given one verse here. We're given very little detail about Joseph's feeling and his initial decision to divorce her. And yet, what inward pain, what humiliation Joseph must have felt. Matthew emphasizes the kind of man that Joseph was in verse 19. Being a just or righteous man and unwilling to put her to shame, he resolved to divorce her quietly or privately. This was permissible for Joseph to do. He could do it privately and legally, and this is what he considered. And so when Matthew tells us he was a just 
or righteous man. It's describing him as a devout Jew in the same kind of class as Zechariah or Elizabeth or Simeon, which we read about in Luke's Gospel in chapter 1 and 2. They were all described as being righteous before God, walking in the commandments of God, and devout. Just or righteous is a word that's not only describing their moral conduct, but their right heart. There's no mention of an outburst of anger on Joseph's part. Quite the opposite. Which is why it says, he did not want to put her to open shame. He didn't want to make a public display or example of her. It's communicating to us that Joseph truly loved his betrothed. And surely he was grieved, humiliated by the news of her pregnancy. And the point is that surrounding the story of our Savior's conception and birth is this note of humiliation. Even the appearance of of indecency or scandal. Not only is Jesus born in a very uh, lowly estate, something that Luke's Gospel emphasizes, as we're told he was laid in a manger when he was born, there was no room for him, but even the pregnancy is surrounded by humiliation. And we see that humiliation not only surround the story of Christ's coming, we see it again toward the end of the Gospel at the cross. People mocking, people scoffing at the Lord. And so both at His birth and His death, humiliation fills the scene. And it reminds us of this. God's ways are often, most of the time, not our ways. His way of salvation and rescue is not our way. For our Lord, the way up is often the way down. And that's the pattern that he sets for our own lives. The way up is often the way down. We see that all the more when we consider the cause of Christ's birth. What brought about the conception of our Lord? Two times in three verses we are told that the conception is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 18, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And then the angel says to Joseph in verse 20, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The eternal Son of God takes on flesh and is made alive in her as a result of the supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. And what we learn in the story here of the Spirit's role in the conception, we learn really in the rest of the New Testament doctrinally about the role of the Holy Spirit. That the role of the Holy Spirit is twofold. One is to bring light upon the person and work of Jesus Christ. Here, the very humanity, the very flesh of Jesus comes into existence through the Holy Spirit. We we can say that the Spirit is Christ centered. The Spirit is Christ-centered. He's like the spotlight that shines to direct the eyes of our hearts upon the beauty and the glory of Jesus. That's His work. 
This is what Jesus himself says in John 15 and 16. The spirit of truth, he will bear witness about me. And in John 16, the spirit of truth, he will glorify me. So he draws attention upon Christ. Which is why, where Christ is central in our lives, in our teaching, in our preaching, in our homes, in our ministry, we can be sure there that the Holy Spirit is at work. Where there's a Christ-centeredness, there is the presence and work of the Holy Spirit. He draws attention upon our Lord Jesus. Uh, That's his ministry. Martin Luther uh, once said, The poor Holy Spirit doesn't know any other subject. He bears witness. He glorifies Christ. Of course, light not only enables us to see in the midst of what was once darkness, but light also draws our attention upon that which is glorious. It it draws attention. Some of us uh, may see this on many mornings if you're up early enough. It's getting more difficult as time is marching on through the year. I've seen it many times on my drive here to the church, driving on Bolton Road, uh, looking east just over Bolton Lake. I'm not sure what direction that is here, but uh, the sunrise. The sunrise. So beautiful. I have been tempted already numerous times to stop on the road, but I, I have not. It draws attention. The sun not only enables one to see, but it will draw attention as it shines in and through the clouds, creating an array of beautiful colors. And here we see the most relevant of points, that as our Lord comes into the world that He has made, what the Gospels want us to see is not only that He comes, but how He is beheld. That popular, well-known statement in John 1, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. We sing those words during Christmas. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. But it doesn't end there. Let earth receive her King. Let every heart prepare Him room. This is the work of the Spirit, to cause room in our hearts and lives to see and to rejoice and to delight in the glory of Jesus Christ. Remember Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4, that the God of this world, the evil one, has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they do not see the light of the gospel. But God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. He sheds light upon Christ. But the other role of the Holy Spirit, it's not only to shed light and bring our attention to the glory of Christ, but to bring the life of Christ into people. He literally, physically takes on flesh in the womb of Mary as a result of the Holy Spirit's work. But for all of us, for all uh, who are in Christ, in whom Christ dwells spiritually and savingly, it's the result of the Holy Spirit. 
Remember Paul's words in Ephesians 3. Through the power of the Spirit, Christ dwells in our hearts through faith. 1 Corinthians 12.3 No one can say Jesus is Lord apart from the Holy Spirit. One person said every conversion is a virgin birth. That's true. It's not natural. It's not the result of the will of man or family descent or of one's personal character. People are born by the Spirit of God. And so we see the circumstances surrounding the conception, the cause of the conception. We then see the reason for the conception and birth of our Lord. Uh, the angel appears to Joseph and says of Mary in verse 21, She'll bear a son. You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, we've already seen in the genealogy important names David, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Ruth, Hezekiah. And often in Scripture, the meaning of names are of special importance. Uh, For example, the name Isaac means he will laugh. Recalling Abraham's own laughter at the thought that God would cause Sarah to become pregnant in her old age. So they bear a son. They name him Isaac. The name Job means persecuted, humbled, representing the, the circumstances of Job's own life full of suffering and hardship. I was thinking about some of your own names. I looked up a few of the meaning of your names. Sterling. Of high quality. I could have probably guessed that. Sterling silver of high quality. I think we have a few Kevins. Kevin, handsome by birth. Some of these, it's challenging. I don't know if parents, when they name their kids, are thinking about the meaning of their names, but... Uh, Bill. We've got a number of Bills. I'm a Bill. William. I mention it because it's a great one. Resolute. Resolute protector. Well, the name Jesus has meaning. In Greek, Isus. In the Hebrew form, Yashu or Yashua. It's where we get Joshua. Yah, meaning the Lord. Shua meaning salvation. Salvation is of the Lord. Or the Lord saves. You shall call His name Jesus. He will save His people from their sins. And so we see the very heart of why Christmas exists. Why our Lord has come to save His people. Not all people. To save His people from sin. I'm sure you've Heard it said, we are sinners not because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. So very true. We have a sin nature that we have inherited from Adam. Our first parent, the first man. Paul says in Romans 5, Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. So death spread to all men because all Sinned. By one man's disobedience, many 
were made sinners. This is why Jesus is called the last Adam by Paul. Just as one man brought sin and death, so another man comes to bring righteousness and life. A man fell, and so we needed a man to save us, to represent us. And so Jesus takes on flesh, takes on humanity, becoming man to represent man and to undo what Adam had done in the first place. Paul summarizes so well the purpose of Christ's coming in 1 Timothy 1. He says, The saying is trustworthy, deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. C.S. Lewis, in his great work on the miracles, says this in capturing the coming of Christ, the incarnation. He says, in the Christian story, God descends to reascend. He comes down, down from the heights of absolute being into time and space, down into humanity, down to the very roots and seabed of the nature He had created. But He goes down to come up again and bring the whole ruined world up with Him. One has the picture of a strong man stooping lower and lower to get himself underneath some great complicated burden. He must stoop in order to lift. He must almost disappear under the load before he incredibly straightens his back and marches off with the whole mass swaying on his shoulders. Or one may think of a diver, first reducing himself to nakedness, then glancing in midair, then gone with a splash, vanished, rushing down through green and warm water, into black and cold water, down through the increasing pressure into the death-like region of ooze and slime and old decay, then up again, back to color and light, his lungs almost bursting, till suddenly he breaks surface again, holding in his hand the dripping precious thing that he had went down to recover. He and it are both colored now that they've come up into the light. But down below where it lay colorless in the dark. He lost his color too. What a picture of the incarnation of God in Christ condescending into our world to take on flesh for us, to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. God made Him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God. Have you, ever, have you ever thought of yourself as ooze, slime, old decay? As Paul says, the foremost of sinners. And yet do we see ourselves through God's eyes as precious in His hands. That those hands that came to recover and to deliver and to save by His grace. Friends, I think one of the greatest distortions of the person and the work of Christ today, of the gospel, I have seen through the years in conversations with many professing believers is people placing the second great commandment, love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus says it in Luke, uh, in uh, quoting from Leviticus 19. 
is the placing of the second great commandment above the first great commandment. Love of neighbor has not only replaced love of God, but in many a mind it has become synonymous with what it means to follow Jesus Christ. And when the second great commandment replaces the first, it leads to humanism. The love of man above the love of God. Christ did not first come and take on flesh to set us an example. He does do that. He does do that. Which is why it's the second great commandment. But he primarily, first and foremost, came to reconcile a people separated from God because of sin. Christ came to bear upon himself the very wrath of God and our sin in our place that we might be reconciled. That's our fundamental problem. That's humanity's great predicament and problem. The need to be delivered from sin. The power and the penalty of sin. And then to be able to love God. And then neighbor. So we see the circumstances of Christ's conception. The cause. The reason. Finally, the fulfillment. The fulfillment of Jesus' conception and birth. In verse 22, it says, All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quoting from Isaiah, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, what's amazing about the, the whole account here, as some commentators note, is that there's as much emphasis upon the names given to the Lord, our Savior, uh, than there is the fact that he's born of a virgin. He is Jesus, our Savior. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the fulfillment. That is the the end point of the great promise of God throughout Scripture. That the Lord will be with His people. He will not leave you or forsake you. Do not fear or be dismayed. And Jesus is... The embodiment. He's the exclamation point of that very promise. And we need to be reminded, God is with us. He will be with us. He will lead us. He will strengthen us, encourage us, sanctify us, teach us. He will help us. He will instruct us. He's with us and He is for us. Let's pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank You for the clarity of Your Word. Those clear statements of the purpose of Your coming to dwell with us. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And Lord, we pray by Your Spirit that we might be able to say with Paul that we are of the foremost. That we are in need of Your dwelling in your saving grace. And Lord, we pray that you would encourage us with what you have accomplished in your coming. That you would strengthen us by the truth that you are with us, that you will not leave or forsake us. And that we would have that 
great picture of your condescending to come to uphold us and to deliver us. O Lord, continue to sanctify each of us and all together corporately. Lord, as we seek to respond to your coming with a a holy and a loving obedience after you and with delight in our hearts. For this we pray uh, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.